1 Thessalonians chapter number 1, verse number 1, the Word of God says, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and your labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that you were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Now, as we spend a few moments over the next few weeks studying through uh, the books of First and Second Thessalonians, there's a couple important truths that you need to keep in mind. Uh, one is that these are Pauline epistles. Now, what I mean by that is, of course, that though they are inspired of the Holy Ghost, they are inerrant, uh, they are the Word of God and not the Word or originating thoughts of men in any way, shape, fashion, or form. The fact that they were written as epistles to a local church, uh, it should inform the way that we digest it. So we're going to spend some time really diving verse by verse into these books of the Bible. But I would encourage you to take time, maybe at least once a week, to sit down and read through these books of the Bible in one setting. Digest it the way that it was first given uh, to that local body of believers. The second thing that's important to note is though there will be several themes that will sort of float in and out of focus as we study through these books of the Bible... Uh, there is one predominant theme in them, and that is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we have titled this uh, series of lessons, Becoming a Second Coming Church. If you were to look at one thing, one idea, one principle that defined and described the church at Thessalonica, it would be the truth of the second coming. It informed everything that they did. It was not merely a uh, theological or eschatological box that they checked. It wasn't just something on their statement of faith. But it permeated everything that they did. Uh, if you were to ask my opinion, and I know none of you have, and that's fine. I'm not. My feelings ain't hurt or nothing. But if you were to ask my opinion, I would say that the chief difference between the early New Testament church and the church today is how uh, fiercely and, and immediately they grabbed this truth of the second coming. These were people that uh, lived as though the trumpet could sound any moment. They lived as though they could hear the shout at any moment. They lived as though each and every moment could be their very last. And it changed them as individuals. It defined them as believers. Uh, we announce at our church every single week, every single service, that the Lord is coming back. And I, I'm proud that we do it. I'm blessed that we do it. But let it never just merely be another announcement that's filed alongside a number of other things. Let that instead be the dominant truth of our lives. 
that the Lord is coming back. He could appear at any moment unto His bride, His church. He's coming back for His own. And this moment, this day, could be our very last day. When you look at your notes in front of you, you'll find that you've got basically five pages. They look like three, but two of them are front and back. Um, and the first four are really just introductory material. We're going to read that, uh, but I want you to take it home, reread it as you have opportunity to do so. Because it frames some of the things going on in the world at that time and in the life of the Apostle Paul. So we'll begin with the preface. It says, a Jew, a Roman, a Greek. That was Paul. He was reared a Jew, was trained to be a rabbi, and was a disciple of the renowned Gamaliel. Some scholars think that he had once been a member of the Sanhedrin. Doubtless he had been one of its most promising sons. But he was also a freeborn citizen of Rome, a rare thing in those days, something that was worth its weight in gold. It kept him in touch with the world of the Caesars and the far-flung empire of Rome. He traveled its roads and sought the protection of its laws. But he also grew up in a busy Hellenistic world, uh, was at home with the Greek language, and was an observer of Greek culture. Those who taught him secular subjects in his school days doubtless caught his imagination with stories of such giants as Caesar and Alexander the Great. Perhaps he was as insistent in saying, I must see Athens, as he was in saying, I must see Rome. All about him were eloquent reminders of the greatness that was Greece and of the empire that was Rome. Paul was not nearly so repelled by the Gentile world as were his Jewish friends. Doubtless when Paul saw in a vision a man from Macedonia calling to him for help, he would be reminded once of that other and earlier man from Macedonia, Alexander the Great. And let me just pause there and say, that is a salient point. You could make a lot of comparisons there, and I'm not going to take the time to do it, but suffice it to say that when Alexander the Great went storming across the European continent, he did it to conquer when Paul went storming across the European con uh, continent, he did it to save sinners and to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a salient point there. You ought to sit and meditate on it sometime. Alexander had come to the throne when barely out of his teens. He made short work of his foes. Once he was firmly seated in power, he launched a career of conquest. The roll call of his victories went on and on. And I'm not going to take the time, but you ought to sit and just consider how rapidly, look through that timeline, how rapidly that Alexander came to the uh, ultimate world uh, throne and power in his day before he uh, died an untimely death. This story of Alexander was as familiar to Paul as his Old Testament. But there was another side to the story, and that was Greek religion. It was an obscene collection of old wives' fables, utterly degenerate and debilitating to national character. Just the same, although Paul deplored Greek morals, he admired the Greek mind. When he received the Macedonian call, he wasted no time in launching his gospel expedition. His conquest of Macedonia was as swift and as sure as Alexander's conquest of the ancient world. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, three, three swift campaigns, and Macedonia was his. Athens, Corinth, Achaia, all his, and it took less than three years. He had kindled a light that would never go out. And still Jerusalem called, Rome called, Spain called, Beyond that, Gaul called, the Germanic tribes called, and the ten islands of Britain called, the world called. Would Paul ever find time to go back to Macedonia? Not soon enough, he feared. So if he were too busy elsewhere to visit Macedonia, then he would write to the believers there. Three of his letters were addressed to cities in Macedonia. 
Two of them, both addressed to the Thessalonians, rank among the earliest products of his pen. Alexander had brought Hellenism to the east, but Paul brought the gospel to the west. The two Thessalonian epistles share a common theme, the second coming of Christ. The first Thessalonian letter emphasizes the rapture of the church, and the second letter emphasizes the rupture of the world. Both letters are tremendously relevant to the perilous times in which we live. In the introduction, it says Paul and Silas headed north from Antioch as Paul launched his second missionary journey. Tarsus, his birthplace, was the immediate target. Then came a swing through Galatia, visits to the churches that Paul had founded on his first journey, and a steady westward march. More and more, the Holy Spirit hindered his plan for invading Asia Minor with the gospel. At last he arrived at Troas, an important seaport not far from ancient Troy, a place to dream dreams and to see visions. Paul had his Macedonian call there. He knew at once that God had spoken, and he took a ship for Neapolis and planted his feet on the continent of Europe. The sea voyage from Troas had been about 125 miles. Less than a dozen miles inland was the Roman colonial city of uh, Philippi. Paul's first European contact was with a Jewess whom he met at a riverside prayer meeting. Lydia and her household responded to the gospel message at once. For the short but eventful time that Paul spent in Philippi, he seems to have been a guest in her home. Events followed quickly. Paul cast an evil spirit out of a slave girl, was at once accused of interfering with the owner's business, and was hauled before the authorities. Both Paul and Silas were publicly flogged, imprisoned, and tortured by being locked up in the stocks. And they sang. That night, an earthquake shook the prison, and their chains fell off. The other prisoners, now completely under Paul's spell, made no attempt to escape. The astonished jailer who was about to commit suicide became a believer instead, and then word came from the authorities that they could now be released. Then Paul produced his trump card. He announced his Roman citizenship. By beating him publicly, no less, the magistrates had committed two serious offenses. Dire would be their punishment if Paul, and presumably Silas, made a federal case out of it. Meekly and abjectly, the guilty magistrates pleaded with the two missionaries. To their great relief, Paul not only chose not to press charges, but also magnanimously agreed to leave town. Thus, the fledgling church was more or less guaranteed security from official interference. Paul and Silas moved on, leaving an infant church behind. Uh, more, Paul seems to have left his old friend Luke behind to help instruct the new believers. This is an interesting thought. It's not at all impossible that Luke was that man from Macedonia of whom Paul had dreamed at Troas. Paul's journey now took him to Amphipolis, a journey of 33 miles, then on to Apollonia, another 30 miles, and so on to Thessalonica, a final 37 miles. Thessalonica had been founded in 316 B.C. and was named for a sister of Alexander the Great. It was a busy and important town with a mixed population of Romans, Greeks, and Jews. It was situated on the Via Ignatia, the great highway that linked Rome with the whole region to the north of the Aegean Sea. Paul's strategic instinct quickly saw the value of planting a church on such a well-traveled interstate and in such a busy place as Thessalonica. At Thessalonica, Paul preached both inside and outside the local synagogue. His rule was to go to the Jew first. He, Silas, and Timothy, a, new, a young new convert who had joined the missionary team at Lystra, first tried to win the Jews to Christ. They became guests of a Jew who bore the Greek name Jason. For three Sundays, Paul accepted the customary invitation extended to visitors to address the synagogue congregation. From a note of Paul's church to, Paul's, to the church at Philippi, we learn that on at least two occasions while he was at Thessalonica, Paul received financial assistance from that church. 
the two cities were only a hundred miles apart. In the synagogue at Thessalonica, Paul sought to prove to the Jews that it was necessary for the Christ to have suffered and risen again from the dead. The few Jews who did believe were soon well nigh swamped by the vast host of Gentile God-fearers who believed along with a considerable number of high-ranking women. The Jewish religious authorities greatly resented this and stirred up the rabble. A mob stormed Jason's house and he and some of the other new Christians were hauled before the authorities. The charge was serious enough. Paul, the accuser, said, was proclaiming the advent of some other king than Caesar, one Jesus by name. The magistrates, all too familiar with the touchiness of the Jews in matters of religion, played down the whole affair. They contented themselves with taking security from Jason and the others and released them. The security probably was a pledge that Paul would leave town quietly, a pledge that Paul might well not have signed had he been pressured. Still, the pledge was given, so Paul packed his bags and prepared to leave. He left behind him a new but virile church. Some of its members are named Aristarchus and Secundus, for instance. Its members were chiefly Gentiles, mostly slaves and artisans. Paul, <coughs> excuse me, Paul seems to have visited Thessalonica too on his third missionary journey. Meanwhile, he was deeply concerned about having to leave these new converts so soon, especially since they were exposed to the active malice of their enemies. Just as Paul left Luke at Philippi, it seems likely he left Timothy at Thessalonica. It was some 40 or 50 miles to Berea, the next city that Paul intended to invade with the gospel. The Jews at Berea were greatly interested in Paul's message and actually searched the scriptures daily to see if Paul's teachings were true. But before long, spiteful Thessalonian Jews showed up, determined to stir up trouble again. Paul was obliged to leave. He seems to have been escorted by some of his converts to the port of Diem, some 16 miles away. At Diem, he took ship for Athens, some 250 miles away. He was now alone and doubtless spent his time aboard ship praying for his new converts and for guidance when he finally, finally he arrived at fabled Athens, the great university city of his day. Athens greatly interested Paul. Much of its illustrious history he doubtless knew by heart. The roll call of scientists and philosophers who had graced the city would, of course, have been familiar to him. He missed his companions. Timothy it was in Thessalonica and Silas was somewhere in Macedonia. Both were diligently running Paul's errands. Unable to sit still, Paul wandered the streets of Athens, noting with every darting glance the gross idolatry of this fabled capital of learning. Mere sights and scenery did not move him much. What he wanted was soul. He began to challenge the Jews in the synagogue and the pagans in the marketplace. Eventually, he was summoned to Mars, Hills to Mars Hill to give account of his teaching. The hearers mocked him, and he moved on alone. As Athens was the seat of Greek culture, so Corinth, which Paul visited next, was the seat of commerce. It was 50 miles west of Athens and stood on an important isthmus. It had two ports, Corinth itself and Centria. The city stood astride the central maritime route between Rome and the east. It was the vanity fair of the ancient world, a godless and vile place to live. Paul, however, planted one of his largest and most gifted churches in this strategic city. In time, both Silas and Timothy showed up. Timothy's news was so good, Paul felt the urge to write a letter to believers at Thessalonica. Some think this was Paul's first apostolic epistle. He seems to have written it from Corinth 16 years after his own conversion, when he was about 46 years old. One interesting fact about this letter is that it does not contain a single Old Testament quotation. The eminence of Christ's return is its predominant theme. Such is the background and context of the book of First and Second Thessalonians. Paul's writing this because he's burdened for these believers that he's had to leave behind 
And he writes to them. There's something uh, deeply intimate and personal about both of these epistles. Uh, vast and sweeping landscapes of prophetic truth are set before us, but always with every pen stroke, we're reminded how much he loved and cherished these people. When we look at our text, we notice a few things that are set before us, but there is one sort of theme in the first chapter, and that is the Lord's coming, a saving truth. In other words, he's going to talk about how that the Lord's first coming has saved them, how that the Lord's second coming will save them from the wrath to come, and how that in the interim of those two things, that their life is to be defined both by the gospel and by the blessed hope of the rapture of the church. Notice our text with me. We see first off in verse number one, Paul and his companions. It says, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus. Uh, Silvanus here, by the way, is the Greek rendering of the name Silas. And thus this letter begins. Paul feels no need to add the customary words of an apostle here. You know, usually he would say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But here again, we see this intimate intimacy. He was writing to beloved friends. Had he not risked his life to bring them the gospel? We see this deeply intimate introduction. Then he turns his attention to the people he's writing to, his audience. And we see Paul not only in his companions, but his converts as well. Who's it written to? Under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Thessalonians, of course, were familiar enough with this word church. Uh, it's a common word. It has become part of our vernacular today. We don't see it as anything uh, revolutionary. Uh, but in the early New Testament church days, that, that word was so pregnant with meaning because it hadn't just come to mean, oh, the building on the corner with a steeple. Uh, the word that's used here, of course, is the Greek word ekklesia, and it means a called out body, a called out group, a, a, an assembly that has been called together. Uh, at that time, it was a thoroughly secular word. It was the name used of the citizens of a Greek town when they assembled to conduct their governmental affairs, almost like we would say a town hall or something of that effect. But it was Jesus himself, however, who seized the word and appropriated it to his own use. You remember he said to Peter, upon this rock will I build my church. He was speaking prophetically of the church spiritual when he said that, which was to be brought into being on the day of Pentecost. He used the word again later to describe the local church. The Holy Spirit took over the sacred use of the word. We read that the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. In addressing the Thessalonian church, Paul gives it two addresses. It was the church of the Thessalonians, but also, he says, that it was which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he gave it a local address. Where is it? It's at Thessalonica. But he gave it a spiritual address as well. At the end of the day, it's in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just drop this piece of, of information on you and we'll move on for time's sake. Uh, but there's uh, well over a hundred, I think it's like a hundred and eight times that the word church is used in the New Testament. And of those times, something like 96 of them, it is used to describe the local body of believers. Now, what does that fact teach us about the church? Well, it teaches us two things. One, it teaches us that God's emphasis is on the local church. When God talks about the church, the vast majority of the time that he's talking about it through the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, he's talking about a local body of believers. God's emphasis is on the local church. But we can't ignore that there's a handful of times that it speaks beyond just that local body and speaks of a kinship that every believer has together through the fellowship of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
You know, isn't it funny? Man always wants to pigeonhole you, you know? I've had people ask me before. I've had them ask me, are you universal church or are you local church? I don't even like the language they use. I don't know what universal church means, but what they're trying to say is, do you believe that the only uh, format or framework of the church is a local body of believers, that that is it and that is it alone? No, I'd say there's more than just that local body. But then there's another crowd that wants to say, well, you accept that uh, every believer in the world constitutes a church. No, they may constitute the church, but it don't constitute a church. A church is a local body of believers that is gathered together under the commission of the gospel to carry out the work of God in this world. And when God reaches down and touches this world in this New Testament dispensation of grace, He does so through the means and mechanism of the local church. We see Paul and his converts here, and he begins with this word of greeting, who they are. He says, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying here? Now, there's much we could do to to expound. You'll find that greeting many times in Paul's writings. But to this body of believers distinctly, what was the import of that phrase? I think in it, it implied, uh, here is a prophet, here is not a prophet, here is an apostle, here is a man of God, here is a church planter. He is many leagues, many miles away from this body of believers that are suffering persecution. But he reminds them that though he may be limited geographically, he is not limited spiritually to be of assistance to them and help to them. When he talks about grace and peace, he's describing not only the things afforded to us in the person of Christ Jesus, but also the things he was praying for them to have. In the midst of a tumultuous society, he said, you can still have grace and peace. It implies for us Paul's ability to intercede on their behalf. He would go on later to describe how uh, in his prayers he's lifting them up, he's remembering them. And I think he's reminding them that though they feel alone on this uh, continent, they are not, for he still has them in his heart. But then also, he says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks not only of his ability to intercede, but of God's ability to intervene. Now, again, in this day of soft, cushy Christianity that we live in, uh, when somebody looks at us funny and, and we think we've been persecuted, uh, we need to be reminded that to these believers in this day that were suffering real Vicious persecution was meaningful for them to be reminded that this little body of believers wasn't just at Thessalonica, but it was in the very person and heart of God as well. And that God had the ability, whether Paul was present or absent, to minister grace and peace and strength and power to them as well. We see a word of greeting. Then we see a word of gratitude. He says, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. He speaks first of his ceaseless praise. He says, we're always thanking God for you. I fear that sometimes our concept of praise is too knit to the idea of the Samaritan leper that's healed. Most of us would say that the great criticism of that uh, group of lepers, of the nine versus the one, is that the nine never even praised him once. Can I say that uh, even of that Samaritan one, it's wonderful he turned back and came back and gave God glory But too often we're like that as well. God does something in our life and we're spiritual enough to turn around and thank Him, but then that's the end of it. We don't continually, perpetually praise God for the things He's doing in our life. Did you know it's okay to praise Him more than once for something He's done in your life? I know you believe that because I hear some of y'all give testimony about God saving you and God keeping you and God blessing you and God helping you in your life. And you'll give testimony of the day that God saved you and made you a child of God. But now, why can we do that about our salvation, but we can't do that about other matters in our life? He said, listen, we're not just praising God for you once. 
But every time God brings you to our mind, we're giving God thanks. We see His ceaseless praise, but we also see His ceaseless prayer. He says with that, when we praise God for you, we also make mention of you in our prayers. We also are storming the throne room of God and asking Him to intervene on your behalf. You see this deeply personal letter that Paul is writing. He's wanting them to understand, I may not be with you, but I'm still with you. I may not be where you're at, but I still am supporting and encouraging you nonetheless. So we see a word of greeting and a word of gratitude. Now he begins a discourse on the gospel. And I will admit to you that there is a personal application of this, and it shouldn't be divorced from that. We should recognize that this is an intimate thing that Paul is saying to them. He's talking about their life and what God has done in their life. But there is a broader application as well. He's going, before we're done with this chapter, to begin talking about uh, the impact of the return of Christ, the import of it uh, on these believers. And with that in mind, he begins by heralding to their mind what the gospel has done in them. In fact, if you were to look at your notes, you would see a few thoughts here. He will talk about the gospel in practice in verse number 3, the gospel in perspective in verse number 4, the gospel in power in verse number 5, the gospel in person in verses 6 through 7, the gospel in proclamation in verses 8 through 9, and then in verse 10, the gospel in prospect. So what is this gospel and how has it made such an impact on this group of believers? First, he speaks about the gospel in practice, and he describes it as looking at the past. He frames it in terms of a past, present, and future uh, ideal. Now, that's not to say that there's some part of the gospel we're waiting to be revealed, but rather it's to say that the gospel, as it's revealed in the Word of God, as it's contained in the Word of God, it informs our past and our present and our future. How did he describe that? Well, in verse 3, he says this, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. Something done and accomplished in the past. The gospel has its roots in historical events, in things that actually happened. And in that day, were still common knowledge when he penned this epistle. The Son of God, who entered into human life by way of a virgin's womb, invaded our planet from the heavens. The event took place in Bethlehem of Judea. Both angelic and human witnesses saw the newborn babe. He grew up in a well-known town that the cultured population of Jerusalem, the capital city of his land, despised. His coming was announced by the greatest preacher of the day who boldly proclaimed him to be the nation's promised Messiah. He lived an impeccable life under the constant scrutiny of God and man. He performed countless amazing but well-accredited miracles. He taught great truths in a particularly pungent and unforgettable way. He was both loved and hated in his life and death. He fulfilled literally many Old Testament prophecies. His enemies were victorious. In the end, they succeeded in their efforts to get rid of him by means of crucifixion. Despite the continuing machinations of his enemies, though, he was buried in a rich man's tomb, and three days later he arose from the dead. Shortly afterward, before many witnesses, he ascended bodily into heaven. These are all historical facts. The doctrine of salvation cannot be divorced from them. So Paul begins by noting your work of faith which put each Thessalonian believer into the family of God. The Old Testament believers look forward by faith to these monumental truths. And from Paul's perspective, he is remembering, he is recollecting what God has done, both in the act of redemption, but also in the application of it in the life of these believers as they accepted the gospel. He describes looking at the past. Then he describes living in the present. He says, I'm remembering not only your work of faith, what God has done in you as believers, 
but also your labor of love. You know, love is essentially what the Christian faith is about. Now, it is love biblically defined. It is love divinely defined. It is not love in the correct, uh, corrupt definition of uh, worldly wisdom. But it is love expressed through Calvary. God commended His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that love that had so changed the life of the believers at Thessalonica had become not just an event that transpired, that inducted them into the family of God, but rather it had become a theme that permeated their everyday life. We could say it this way, that love brings things down to earth and up to date. The life of Christ could be summarized in one word, love. He says, when I look at what God's done in your life, I don't just notice how He's transformed you and saved you. And He describes that later on in them turning from idols to serve the living God. But He says, I've also seen the active love of God in your life as you share the gospel and as you minister to others. He describes living in the present. Many describes longing for the prospect. He says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. You know, the great hope of the church is the rapture, what Paul calls our blessed hope. He keeps this hope before the Thessalonians throughout this letter. So here we have the first introduction of this hope. They are living expectantly in great anticipation of this event that will later on be described and detailed for us. So we see the gospel in practice. Then he makes an interesting statement. We see the gospel in perspective. Verse 4, he says, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Well, let me tell you, that word election has been taken, hijacked, uh, beat half to death, run through a sausage grinder, dragged out the other side, and treated as though it has not been abused by man's concepts and by man's interpretation. The term elect is distinctly associated with Israel in the Old Testament. And it reflects the idea of a privileged status or station. In the New Testament, it is used in correlation to the believer. But there's an interesting truth, I think, that must be mentioned. Did you know that in the Old Testament, the term elect is always used for Israel as a nation? Every occasion when it talks about the elect, it's talking about Israel as a nation, as a people. It's never talking about Gentiles. So there's one occasion in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, one chapter where there is an individual that is described as the elect of God. An individual. That individual is the Lord Jesus Christ. Say, so, preacher, New Testament believers, are they elect? Yeah, they are elect. Uh, I didn't, they are elected. I didn't say they are selected. I said they are elected. They have a privileged station and position. How'd they get that? Well, there was a fellow in the Old Testament that was chosen, that was selected, that was looked at and viewed to be impeccable and righteous and sinless in every way. He came in the New Testament. He died on the cross of Calvary in your place and mine. And now we, through faith in His finished work, can be a new creature in Christ Jesus. We are now fellow heirs with Him. We are the heirs of God. In other words, as we positionally have been put in the place of Christ, New Testament believers are elect. That doesn't mean that God's picking out a baseball team. He says, you look pretty good and you don't. You don't look like you can hit. You look like you can run bases. Rather, what it means is He's chosen Christ. And if we've chosen Christ, then we are then chosen in Christ of God. It's all about being in Christ. But there's another perspective that a commentator gave. I want to read it to you, and I want you to listen carefully. It relates to the time element of this idea of election. And it really speaks to the question, the, the chicken and the egg thing, right? Did God choose me or did I choose God? The word election here is ekloge. 
The Lord Himself used that word when He sent Ananias to visit the newly reborn Saul of Tarsus in that house on Straight Street in Damascus. Ananias objected. Saul was a dangerous man. He had wrought great evil to the Jerusalem church. And there in Damascus, he was the agent of the Jewish religious establishment of Jerusalem, expressly commissioned to arrest all of the believers in the city. Ananias seems to be well informed, but he was simply telling the Lord things that the Lord already knew. And he was eloquent about it too. But the Lord knew what Ananias did not know. Saul of Tarsus was now a believer. Indeed, Ananias must do what he was told, because as for Saul, he is a chosen vessel, elect, he is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. God makes choices, and so do we. The Holy Spirit makes perfectly clear that divine election is based solidly on God's foreknowledge. Our lives are conditioned by the fact that we live in a space, time, and matter universe. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit makes perfectly clear that divine election is based solidly on God's foreknowledge. Our lives are conditioned by the fact that we live in a space, time, and matter universe. We express our mode of being in three tenses of time. For instance, we say, I was, I am, I will be. But God is not thus confined. He lives and moves and has his being in eternity. He expresses his mode of being, however, as existing in the eternal present tense. He calls himself the I am. When challenged, Jesus maintained his deity in the same way. He said before Abraham was, I am. Listen carefully to this. God gathers all time into the present tense. Thus, the exact moment that we choose Christ is the same exact moment that God chooses us. As far as God is concerned, the two acts are simultaneous. We cannot say that God has endowed us with a will and then say that we cannot exercise our will in relation to our decision for Christ. God created people, not puppets. And people have wills of their own. In other words, our confusion on this matter of did He choose us or did we choose Him is all related to the fact that we live in this moving continuum of time where we can't go back to what was, we can't speed ahead to what is, we are confined to where we are now. But God's not that way. Uh, everything at every moment is in the immediate presence of God. Therefore, to God, there's no time discrepancy. That moment when we chose Him and He chose us is the very same. Say, preacher, what will He do for somebody else? He'll choose them if they'll choose Him. Let me say that again. He'll choose them if they'll choose Him. He's died for all men, what the Bible says. He's tasted death for every man. Even for those that reject Him, He has died for them and made a way for them to be saved. And all that's lacking now is for them to make their choice to choose Christ Jesus. I would say that we have the gospel in perspective here. Then we see the gospel in power. Uh, first, we see Paul's explanation. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power. We see here the power of the Holy Gospel. That word power is interesting. You know, the gospel is always in word. Essentially, it is a message from heaven. It deals with facts. It reveals truth about God and man. It extends an invitation. It woos and it warns. People need to be told. The gospel is in word, but it is not in word only. Paul had not walked all of the way from Philippi to Thessalonica with a bleeding back just to talk. His message was in power. The word that's used here is the word dunamis. It means untrammeled, unequaled power. We get our word dynamite from it. And when Paul came to town, he did not merely conduct a few meetings, collect his honorary degree and leave town. He fully expected that things would happen when he came and preached the gospel. Souls would be saved, lives would be changed, and churches would spring up. People would get angry, the devil would stir up opposition. Thus, when he approached Thessalonica, 
He expected the high explosive power of the gospel to stir things up there just as it had at Philippi. He says when we came, it wasn't just in the communication of a message, but it was also in the communication of ministry. The thing that marked Paul's preaching was not great eloquence or oratory. He said this plainly, that he came not in words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration and power of the Holy Spirit. The thing that made him different was that God blessed and honored his preaching because he was surrendered and submitted unto God. We think we need more preaching. We think we need more preachers. But what we need is more power from on high. The power of the Holy Gospel. And where does that come from? Well, it comes from the person of the Holy Spirit. It says, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. From start to finish, everything about Christianity is supernatural. No wonder we have to rely on the Spirit of God. Between Passover and Pentecost, the Lord's disciples gathered in the upper room and enjoyed each other's fellowship. They had a lot to talk about. They could discuss the past, anticipate the future. They could pray, determine what uh, made a man an apostle. But they were powerless to witness. The Holy Spirit had to come. Preaching has to be in power and in the Holy Spirit. Thus Paul marched into Thessalonica, filled and anointed with the Spirit of God. Now listen, I believe the gospel has power, but I believe that power works in accordance with the ministration and power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you can slap people with the gospel all day long, but if God's not working in their heart and in their mind, they'll reject it. They'll deny it. They'll push it away. Now somebody will say, well, preacher, are you saying there has to be some great heavenly manifestation? No, I'm saying this, that God has to show them their lost condition. And if they will have an open ear to the truth of the Word of God, then God will show them that. I'm not saying that we have to sit around and wait for some great manifestation. I'm saying that when a person is open to the truth of the gospel, there will be a ministration of the Holy Spirit in showing them their need of Christ. We see Paul's explanation, then we see his expectation. He said, in much assurance, we came unto you and we preached and we delivered the power of the gospel unto you in much assurance. Paul preaching was also in much assurance. Paul preached for three Sabbaths. Countless people were saved. The only explanation of such results is the Holy Spirit. I understand we're living in days that can be discouraging, days in which there's much darkness. But I believe that we're still living in days in this dispensation of grace when God saves sinners. I believe if we'll be faithful to give the gospel, the Holy Spirit will be faithful to do what the old-timers used to say, His office work. He'll work in their heart. He'll work in their life. Then we see Paul's example. He says, As you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Now, there's much I would say here, but for time's sake, I'm going to be very brief. Let me just say, the more we're around people, the more they must see the gospel of Jesus Christ lived in our everyday life. Paul goes on to describe this, but I would say those interactions in passing moments, they probably don't matter that much. They probably don't know you very well. But if you're going to reach the people that God has given you the greatest sphere of influence with, they're going to have to see a testimony and witness of the gospel in your life. Paul says the reason that it worked was because God was with us. The gospel is powerful. And our lives testified of the power of God to change a man. We live that truth in front of you. So we have in this passage the gospel in power. Then we have the gospel in person. Uh, whenever they looked at Paul, they learned some things. Notice first off what the Thessalonians discerned. Uh, he says this, you became followers of us and of the Lord. Notice the pattern that they picked up on. There was no difference between the Christ whom Paul preached and the Christianity that Paul practiced. To follow Paul was to follow Christ because Paul himself so closely followed Christ. Let me be very careful here. I'm not advocating a cult of personality. 
We certainly, and Paul gave us an example of this. He didn't point men to himself. He always pointed men to Christ. He wasn't setting up a little kingdom of his own. He said, I have no desire to baptize any of you. <laughs> he said, it's not about me, it's about Jesus Christ. But we should live in such a way that people don't spend all their time trying to reconcile the breakdown between our lives and the message of our lips. They looked at Paul and they said, Paul's practicing what he preached. Paul had learned so uh, had so learned how to live the life of Christ that he could actually encourage his converts to follow him. The Lord Jesus set before us a day-by-day, audio-visual, full-color demonstration of what God is like. And we should set before others a day-by-day, audio-visual, full-color demonstration of what Jesus is like. They said, he, this man lives what he preaches. And in doing so, they said, we'll follow Paul, and he, as he said in another place, as he follows the Lord. Then notice, they didn't just discern the pattern of Paul, but they discerned having patience in persecution. He says, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. They recognize the fact that Christianity is alien to this world. The world is our enemy. It murdered God's son. It persecutes the church. Persecution of the church is endemic in all human society. From time to time, persecution becomes epidemic. And when that happens, a holocaust occurs. In Paul's day, Christians had to confront raw paganism, Greek intellectualism, Roman totalitarianism, and Jewish intolerance. The Thessalonians responded to the persecution just the way Paul and Silas had responded to it at Philippi. They sang. They had the joy of the Holy Ghost. Joy is the second fruit of the Spirit. It's not simply happiness. Happiness depends on what happens. But joy is rooted in God. Throughout the ages, Christian martyrs have sang in the arenas of persecution and death and when burned at the stake. So we see not only what they discerned, but then we see what they displayed. It says in verse 7, so that you were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. The word examples is the word two posts. It literally means types. It's used of the print of the nails in the hands of Jesus, which Thomas said would alone convince him that Jesus was indeed bodily alive from the dead. It suggests the idea of a mold or a pattern or a model. Jesus had been Paul's model. Paul had been their model. They now became model believers, the true pattern for all believers in Greece. Incidentally, Paul sent this letter from Corinth, the chief city of Achaia, to Thessalonica, the chief city of Macedonia. In other words, he's telling the truth. He's saying, these believers are here watching what you're doing and saying that's what a Christian looks like. Every believer should so live Christ that others can point to him or her as a true Christian type, a model for everyone. Paul saw the Thessalonian Christians as setting the pace for all of greater Greece. Isn't it interesting, that same word is used about those nail prints. Thomas said, if I see the nail prints, I'll believe this is the real deal. I believe this is legitimate. If I see the, the, the nail prints, I'll know this is the real thing. You know, that's how the world's looking at us. They're looking at us like those nail prints and saying, if I can see a real Christian, I'll believe Christianity's real. Part of the reason the church struggles today is there's so many fake Christians. They look at it and say, well, if that's Christianity, then Christianity's fake. Because every Christian I know is a fake Christian. But if they see real Christianity, they'll draw the conclusion that Christianity must be real. So we see the gospel in person. Then we see the gospel in proclamation. Verse number 8. He says, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. The word sounded out here uh, occurs only here and refers to the sounding of a herald's trumpet. Such was the boldness of their witness in a hostile world. 
They did not hide timidly behind closed doors and whisper the gospel into the ears of their most trusted friends. I'm going to read that again because that convicted me when I when I read that and, and I want to read it again to you. They did not hide timidly behind closed doors and whisper the gospel into the ears of their most trusted friends. They shouted it from the housetops. They preached the good news loudly in the marketplace. They told it to everyone. Everyone sat up and took notice. What they had discovered in Christ was too good to be kept to themselves. They were sounding out the word of the Lord. You know, this expression, which occurs more than 200 times in the Old Testament, stands for the revealed truth of God. Ezekiel was particularly fond of the expression. He used it to indicate the secondary divisions of his book. The Jews had the word of the Lord, but they kept it jealously to themselves. If a Gentile wanted to hear it, he had to go to the synagogue and become a proselyte of Judaism. The Christians received the word of the Lord, amplified as it was by New Testament revelation, and took it out of the synagogue, out from behind the closed doors of Judaism, and into the marketplace and onto the city streets. They trumpeted the message where they worked and where they lived. They told everyone. They became fearless ambassadors for Christ and earned the resentment and active malice of the Jews as a result. We can imagine the resentments that the Jews nurtured against the Christians. The truth of God had been the exclusive preserve of the Hebrew people for 2,000 years. If God had anything to say, He said it in Hebrew. He spoke to a Jew. For centuries, the Jews had been the recipients and custodians and sole proprietors of the Word of God. The Gentile wanted to know the truth of God. He had to go to a Jew. Pentecost put an end to all of that. After Pentecost, if God had anything to say, He said it in Greek. He spoke in a Gentile language that most people could understand. The New Testament was written in Greek because God was now speaking to the world. And Greek was the language of the world. It was being preached and proclaimed to Gentiles and by Gentiles in ever-increasing numbers. It's in my notes, but let me just drop this here. Anybody know anyone that speaks Koine Greek? Anybody know anyone that speaks English? God has always given His Word in a language for a purpose. Today, English is the global language. Should it be any surprise that God has inerrantly and perfectly and immutably preserved His Word for us in the English language? We see not only here the sphere of their witness, we see the scope of it. He says not only in Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad so that we need not speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. Paul had worked himself out of a job through these Thessalonian believers. Instead of him going to others with the gospel, they were coming to him because they had already heard it from the Thessalonian believers. The gospel and its impact was being gossiped all of the way from Thessalonica to Corinth. It had become a general topic of conversation. Then we see the significance of their witness. He says, not only they themselves show unto us what manner of entering in we had unto you, but they show us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Obviously, most of the converts in this mighty moving of the Holy Spirit had been pagans and idolaters. The Greek pantheon of fabled gods gave the Thessalonians many gods from which to choose. At Athens, Paul saw that great city wholly given over to idolatry. The Romans sarcastically said that it was easier to find a god than a man at Athens. Then Paul came, preaching Christ and proclaiming the living and true God. The Gentiles by the thousands were eager and ready to turn to God from idols. The truth seized their hearts, minds, and wills with great power. Here at last was the reality for which they had longed. The truth of God in Christ, proclaimed in all of the mighty, convicting, converting power of the Holy Spirit, had taken their hearts by storm. 
by the thousands they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That is genuine conversion. It always involves a complete about face. The word serve here means to serve as a bondsman. They became willing bond slaves of Jesus Christ. We could summarize that by saying they looked at him and said, this is the real deal. Paul then introduces them. Well, I won't say he introduces it. He spoke of their hope before. But I want you to notice what he says in verse number 10. He says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Here we see the gospel in prospect. The first thing Paul deals with is a word about the rapture. The word wait is amenino. Anamino. I'll get that said here in a row. I told you, I don't know nobody speaks Greek, including me. Somebody say amen to that. Anamino. It occurs only here in the New Testament. But a word of close kind, paramino, makes its sole appearance in the last words to his disciples before his ascension uh, into heaven, the Lord's last words. He said that they were not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. Wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. The word is also used to describe a servant's eager waiting for his wages and is used to describe the longing of an afflicted person for deliverance. It could be presented to us in this way. It means to wait up. You ever call home and somebody said, I'll wait up for you? It's the same idea here. Wait up. The Thessalonians were saved and they were waiting up for God's Son from heaven. They'd been taught the truth of the rapture, the truth of the imminent coming of the Lord Jesus. They were expecting Him at any moment. They were waiting up for Him. That is how real the truth of the rapture was to the Thessalonians. It spurred them on to win souls to Christ. They wanted to be found active in His service, in the center of His will, waiting up for Him when He came. You know, at this point, it's important to distinguish between the two comings of Christ. The Jews of Jesus' day failed to recognize the fact that their Old Testament Scriptures foretold two comings. The rabbis recognized seemingly conflicting Scriptures. They read the glowing promises of the prophets of a sovereign Messiah and looked for a Messiah who would crush their enemies, make Jerusalem the capital of a new world empire, and reign from the river to the ends of the earth. They looked for one who would beat swords into plowshares, make the desert blossom as the rose, and cause the lion to lie down with the lamb. That kind of a Messiah they would have welcomed with open arms. But they read too of a suffering Messiah. They read of one who would be betrayed by a friend and sold for the price of a slave. They read of one whose hands and feet would be pierced, who would be given vinegar mingled with gall to drink, and one for whose vesture the people would cast lots. They read of this one who would be abandoned by God. However, this one would be buried in a rich man's tomb and his body would be preserved from corruption. The rabbis puzzled over these seemingly conflicting scriptures. Their solution was to anticipate two messiahs. One would be a sufferer, and the other would be a savior. They were wrong in their conclusion. There were not to be two Christs, there were to be two comings. Many professing Christians make a similar mistake regarding the Lord's return. Some scriptures portray the return of Christ as imminent. Other scriptures make evident that many things must happen before the Lord's return. Some scriptures point to the date of the Lord's return as the best kept secret in the universe. Other scriptures point to the Lord's return as being very specifically dated. Attempts to reconcile these seemingly conflicting scriptures have resulted in a bewildering array of conflicting positions. As a result, some people have given up any attempt to understand Bible prophecy. They're content to hold a vague, general belief that the Lord will come again. And that's all. It's important that we strive to understand these truths instead of disregarding them. 
There are to be two comings of Christ. The Lord is coming first in the air to receive his own to himself. Later, he is coming to the earth to set up his millennial kingdom. He is coming first for his saints. He is coming later with his saints. His coming for his saints we call the rapture. His coming with his saints is called the return. The coming of the Lord for his saints is imminent, undated event, something that can take place at any moment. This coming is for the church, and it is the coming that predominates the eschatology of Paul's first Thessalonian letter. The coming of the Lord with his saints is a dated event. Certain things have to happen before it can happen. The Antichrist, for instance, must come and briefly rule the world. This coming has to do primarily with Israel and the world, and is the coming that predominates the eschatology of second Thessalonians. There's no point in waiting up for an event that right from the start is a long time off. But every reason exists to wait up for an event that could take place at any time. You know, God has always set dates for predicted future events that concern the nation of Israel. When he promised to give Abraham a land that would stretch all the way from the Nile to the Euphrates, he told him from the start that it would not be in his lifetime. On the contrary, 400 years would elapse before the fulfillment of the promise could be expected. Abraham's descendants would be persecuted in a foreign land, and they would be emancipated in the fourth generation. A biblically literate Hebrew in the Egyptian ghetto could have known for sure that Moses was the emancipator and that the date foretold was at hand. Moses represented the fourth generation. Levi, Kohath, Amram, Moses. Four generations. God set a date, circled it on his calendar, and kept it. When the Babylonian captivity loomed on the Judean horizon, God set another date. The captivity would last for 70 years. When Darius the Mede entered Babylon in the wake of Cyrus, whose coming had been foretold much earlier, even by Isaiah, Daniel realized that the time of the exile was over. It was time for God to act. Daniel gave himself to prayer. God sent an angel to assure Daniel that things were proceeding according to plan. The 70-year captivity was about to end. It was time to reveal to Daniel a new cycle of time that was soon to commence. There would be a period of 77, a period of 490 years. After 69 of those sevens, in other words, 483 years, the Messiah would be cut off. The remaining period of seven years was left in suspension, awaiting events and further revelations. A starting date was given for the commencement of this new period of 77. And a biblically literate Jew living in the time of Christ could have set the date of the crucifixion to the day. Sir Robert Anderson has shown that the period of 483 years expired the day Jesus rode in triumph into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. It is the same with the return of Christ to the earth with his saints to set up his millennial kingdom. The pending final seven years of Daniel's prophecy now comes into focus. The Antichrist will sign a seven-year treaty with the nation of Israel that will signal the beginning of the final countdown to the return of Christ. Halfway through the period, the Antichrist will tear up his treaty, occupy Jerusalem, seize the rebuilt Jewish temple, and set up his image within. He will promulgate his terrible laws, demanding worship for his image, for Satan, and for himself. He will inaugurate that fearful time of persecution known as the Great Tribulation, and as the time of Jacob's trouble. At this point, exactly 1260 days will be left until the visible return of Christ to put an end to these horrors, judge the earth, and set up his kingdom. The biblically literate Jew living in those days of terror will be able to do a day-by-day countdown to the return of Christ. Setting dates has to do with the nation of Israel, not with the church. The coming of Christ for the church is an undated, imminent event, the actual time of which is a secret known only to God the Father. The Thessalonians were not looking for the return of the Lord to reign. There was no point in waiting up for that event. 
The Lord had indicated in various parables that a considerable delay would occur before he would come back and claim his kingdom. Although there was no point in waiting up for the return of Christ to set up his kingdom, there was every reason to wait up for the rapture. So we have a word about the rapture. Then we have a word about the resurrection. Uh, it says, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus. Having thus mentioned the rapture, Paul mentions the resurrection, which is closely connected with the rapture. His resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. The truth of resurrection is unfolded in the New Testament under the figure of a harvest. The Jewish harvest was in three stages. First came the first fruits, dedicated to God and waved before Him. When the Lord Jesus rose from the dead, He brought the wave sheep with Him, those initial Old Testament saints. After the first fruits came the main harvest. The main resurrection will be at the time of the rapture, when the Lord takes His beloved church to be with Him. Paul develops this truth later in this letter. After the harvest came the gleaning. The poor were allowed into the field to gather what remained. This gleaning anticipates the resurrection of Old Testament believers at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. The rapture of the church and the resurrection of God's saints are closely associated truths. Then he gives us a word about the rescue. Now, listen, I know we are three minutes past, but bear with me. I want to get this. Uh, this is the last thing I'm going to say. It'll take me two and a half hours, but it's the last thing I'm going to say. But I, but I want to get it said. We're right at the very end. Which delivered us from the wrath to come. What's the wrath? What's the deliverance? The word delivered is in the present tense. Uh, the word itself, ruoma, carries predominantly the idea of rescue. And the present tense here, he rescued us and he is still rescuing us, is linked, as is often the case in Scripture, with a future meaning. In other words, our salvation not only takes care of our past sins and our present needs, but also embraces our rescue from the coming wrath of God yet to be poured out on this planet. The word for wrath is orge, which is often used to depict God's purposes in judgment. The wrath mentioned here is closely associated with the rapture and resurrection. It refers to the coming time when God will visit this world with judgment. Right now we are living in the age of grace. Scripture assures us that the age of grace will eventually give way to the day of God's righteous judgment. His wrath will be unleashed in judgment upon Jews and Gentiles alike. The word orge is used five times in the book of Revelation to depict the great tribulation. The people living on the earth when the sealed judgments are unleashed will cry in terror to the mountains and rocks saying, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Verse 17 of Revelation chapter 6, they'll add, for the great day of his wrath is come. Now listen, a mid-tribulationist would say you're not in the wrath of God yet in chapter number 6, but it's the exact same word that Paul uses when he talks about the wrath to come. So when he says God's delivered us from the wrath to come, he's using the exact same word that those believers, those individuals are in Revelation chapter 6 when they talk about the wrath of God being poured out. Here's what I'm saying. The idea that, well, you know, you've got the, the, the what is it, you know, the, the uh, tribulation and then you've got the wrath and you've got this midway point. You've got, that's all man-made distinction. It's nowhere in the Bible. Rather, this seven-year period, which of course is divided in two, but it's not divided in two in relation to the church's relationship to the seven-year tribulation, but rather to Israel's relationship with the seven-year tribulation. When the Antichrist finally consolidates all power into his hands and triumphs over the two witnesses, a terrible earthquake heralds the translation of the two martyrs to heaven. The time arrives for the sounding of the last trumpet that signals, among other things, the actual outpouring of the vials of God's wrath. We read, and the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. Revelation 11:18. 18. 
The word is used to describe the overthrow of Babylon, the coming economic capital of the Antichrist empire. Revelation 16, 19, the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Revelation 19.15, when the Lord returns with His saints at the end of the Great Tribulation to meet the Antichrist and the marshaled millions from both the East and the West mashed at Megiddo, it will be to make a swift and summary end of His foes. And it says, Out of His mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it He should smite the nations, and He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and He treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. There's another word for wrath that also occurs five times in the book of Revelation. The word thumos which indicates the outburst of wrath rising from God's indignation. The word is used to describe God's anger against all those who succumb to the Antichrist demand that all men everywhere receive his mark in their forehead or in their right hand. God sends an angel to warn the world. He says in Revelation 14.10, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. When God's final judgments are about to be visited upon this planet, an angel will be sent to gather in the vintage of this world's wickedness. It says in Revelation 14, another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. The angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. No sooner has the preceding announcement been made, then the stage will be set for the outpouring of the seven bowls of God's wrath. John says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Revelation 15:7. this solemn assembling of God's agents of destruction is followed by worship in heaven. The heavenly hosts are thrilled that at long last God is about to put an end to man's wickedness on earth. The angels of wrath come out of the temple, armed and ready to accomplish God's final judgments. And it says in verse 7, And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. Then the heavenly temple is suddenly filled with smoke. No man will now be able to enter that temple. It will be out of bounds until the outpouring of the bowls. Prayer time is over. John adds, And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. As a result, the Antichrist's power structure will be broken. The eastern half of his global empire will break away. The nations of the east will unite, mobilize against him, cross the Euphrates, and march to Megiddo. God's final judgment will fall there. From all of this, the church is to be delivered. But coming back to the Thessalonians, Certain false teachers had tried to persuade them otherwise. This only called forth Paul's second letter to them, in which he re-emphasizes the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. We are delivered, rescued from all these coming horrors by the rapture. When people try to say, well, there's pre-wrath and post-wrath and mid-wrath and upper-wrath and lower-wrath, they're making distinctions God never makes. All through the book of Revelation, you'll hear that bell pealing and tolling, the wrath, the wrath, the wrath, the wrath. For all through that seven years, God's pouring out wrath on this earth. And God said, I've saved you, I've delivered you from that wrath to come. 